welcome to Rising. So glad to have you here watching us. It's going to be a great show today. Uh, more news to discuss regarding Tucker Carlson. Who else? Who else indeed, Robbie? <laughs> Well, first up, according to salacious new reporting in Vanity Fair, Fox Corporation Chair Rupert Murdoch removed Tucker Carlson from the air over religious remarks the host made during a speech last Friday night. Quote, that stuff freaks Rupert out. He doesn't like all the spiritual talk, a source told reporter Gabriel Sherman. We've got some video from that speech. Let's watch. When people or crowds of people, or the largest crowd of people at all, which is the federal government, the largest human organization in human history, decide that the goal is to destroy things, destruction for its own sake. Hey, let's tear it down. What you're watching is not a political movement, it's evil. Maybe we should all take just like 10 minutes a day to say a prayer about it. I'm serious, like why not? And I'm saying that to you, not as some kind of evangelist, I'm literally saying that to you as an Episcopalian. The Samaritans of our time. I'm coming to you from the most humble and lowly theological position you can. I'm literally an Episcopalian, okay? And even I have concluded it might be worth taking just 10 minutes out of your busy schedule to say a prayer for the future, and I hope you will. Sherman also reports on a key dinner between Murdoch and his then fiance and Carlson that took place last year. Apparently, this is all according to Gabriel Sherman, which I'll give you my opinion on in a moment, but Murdoch was, according to Sherman, so unnerved about this ultra-religious fiance that he, calling uh, Carlson a, quote, messenger from God, he actually ended their engagement just days after that dinner took place. Sources told Vanity Fair that Fox ultimately settled its legal dispute with Dominion because Fox lawyers did not want 92-year-old Rupert to testify, as a Apparently, it would reveal that he's in an advanced uh, state. According to additional reporting, the Politique Republic uh, on Substack quoted, was quoted as saying that Carlson's prior $1.6 million per month contract has as much as 18 months remaining. Fox CEO Lachlan Murdoch and Carlson were in the middle of negotiating an extension through 2029 when the Murdochs decided to bench him instead. They don't want Tucker going anywhere, and they're going to force him to sit on the bench for months as they recover from his departure. All right, so, so a lot to go over here. Uh, first of all, you know, the, the report about the Rupert Murdoch not being comfortable with the religious tone of Tucker's speech, which we played some of. We, maybe we should just read it. Very skeptical. I'm very skeptical of that. But why, why is it that you're so, so skeptical of that? I mean, the, the, the network has tons of very religious, very socially conservative yeah. content all the time. What Tucker said in those remarks, I didn't find to be particularly more. I mean, this is a network that has employed yeah. like Mike Huckabee and people sure. like that. You know, sure, I, I agree. Fanatical. So I looked up, you know, some other comments that were said. Apparently, elsewhere in this in the address, Carlson called abortion child sacrifice, and he cast American politics as a battle between good and evil. And his solution was to take ten minutes a day to say a prayer about it. So there was a little bit more than what we just saw in that mm -hmm. clip. But I agree. It seems to me that there has never been any hesitation about the religiosity of the discourse on 100%. Fox News, especially in an earlier era in the early aughts in the Bush years. I feel like um, evangelical religiosity was much more in the foreground of Republican conservative political thought. And the idea that that was fine, the kind of Huckabee Sanders of the world were fine, and now some remarks that were given not even on Fox, Fox's own program yeah. were, the result, were the cause of this breakup, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah, quite and this, pass the smell this test to me. Sort of 
meeting between the three of them, and and then he breaks it off with the fiance and. Tucker being her favorite. That sounds like a plot line out of Succession or something. <laughs> Not necessarily something that corresponds with reality. Gabriel Sherman, you know, wrote a, a very popular book about Roger Ailes. Uh, Fox denied tons of the uh, the anecdotes there within. You have to make up your own mind. But for all the theories of what has what what went wrong between Fox and Tucker Carlson, I don't find this one particularly. I mean, can it possible. just be the case that there are multiple factors going on here? That it might be true that Rupert Murdoch has somewhat of a distaste personally for religiosity. That maybe that is a factor in him breaking up with his fiance. Maybe that is a little bit of something that that stuck under his crawl with Tucker Carlson. But it was the that plus the Dominion lawsuit mm -hmm. liability for the company plus the personal statements that came out in the Dominion transcripts that. Uh, the you know the 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 slights from Tucker against management, um, plus the fact that there's still a pending lawsuit, plus the accusations from Tucker's former producer mm -hmm. uh, Abby Grossman uh, Grossberg rather about the um, anti-Semitic statements in the workplace and the um, uh, inappropriate sexual environment at the workplace. Can't it just be maybe maybe we're all just Chasing at figments, trying to nail down one answer. It can't just be all of those things in, in tandem. Well, certainly the mainstream media is getting very interested in the Abby Grossberg lawsuit and pointing to that as a prime culprit here. Uh, she was actually interviewed on MSNBC the other day, and I believe we have some clips of that. Uh, let's go ahead and play it. Where are all of those recordings now? Did Dominion ultimately get them? I still have, I have several recordings that I'm still going through that we've recovered from all of the phones. There are 90 that we have. Um, uh, I don't know what Fox turned over. I do know based on what I've read that they did hand over those Sydney and Rudy tapes to them. Um, I, Fox should have everything. They really should. Grossberg um, also said that Tucker Carlson and his executive producer personally made her life a living hell. Because obviously, you know, I'm at the center of a lot of this and it felt surreal. And there were a lot of mixed emotions that went through my head. There were feelings at first like, yes. And then also the reality that you don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. But at the same time, Tucker and his executive producer, Justin Wells, who was also fired, really were responsible for breaking me and making my life a living hell. So there is a feeling of justice, but it's only partial. Why did you go work for him? I was working with Maria Bartiromo at the time. I knew as a female that I would never get the executive producer title there working on that show. The opportunity came up to go to Tucker and it was a promotion. I would be overseeing a team I would also be overseeing three different platforms. And I liked the, the staff, honestly, when I interviewed with them. And I was hoping that it would be more professional and what he was portraying on air was just a show. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And again, that's her version of things. We are not, in, and really no one in the public is in a position to adjudicate exactly what happened with this employee, if the circumstances were as she described. I don't know and would tend to extremely doubt that it's the case that a, a woman is not, there's no women serving in executive producer roles. That is something we could probably check, but I... <laughs> well, I don't have quite so much skepticism uh, about that, given the way that the world 
often works. <laughs> However, uh, I know obviously it's an open question about what it is that she actually has mm -hmm. in the way of evidence. She says she has 90 recordings of that shows some evidence of a hostile work environment. So, you know, that would certainly would make me a little nervous if I were in the position that Tucker Carlson and Fox News is in right now. It's unclear why she would claim something like that if she doesn't actually have the goods. Of course, it could be that what's on those recordings is not especially material. And I'm sure we'll find out all of that very soon as there continues to be a great deal of public interest. But we in should definitely, uh, we, we kind of glossed over there at, at the beginning, I think probably the most important part of all of this, which is that there is a, a possibility that Tucker is, is going to be effectively silenced, not speaking. I mean, consensually, if he's accepting this, the, the, the payout for the rest of his contract, it was like $30 million if it's 18 months, um, that may take him out of the game for, for playing the role of, of pundit during the election, during a primary battle for the soul of the uh, Republican Party, its ideological direction, Trump, DeSantis, maybe someone else. He was primed as Fox's most important anchor to play a huge role in adjudicating how this would all shake out. Um, it is, and, and I know, I, I think there are people in Trump world who are not happy, who would have, per, I think, perceived him to be, at the very least, a fair kind of referee for this battle between Trump and DeSantis, or, or not. I think, overly partial to one or the other. Um, obviously, he's had a lot of esteem for many of Trump's positions. He interviewed him very favorably just a few days ago before this happened. Right. Uh, he's also been, you know, very glowing and gushing and promoting of DeSantis. And, but of course, I, I, privately, what we know from the Dominion uh, discovery is that he said a bunch of negative things about uh, Trump, saying that he was very hopeful that we were soon going to be at a point well, where we never had to talk about Donald Trump again, that he hates Donald Trump. I mean, none of that has phased Donald Trump. Donald Trump was asked about uh, Tucker's exit the other day on Newsmax and was like, I don't understand it at all. Tucker's great. I love the guy. So tr Trump world people thought they got a, a fair shake and maybe a fair shake and then some. No, no. From, that's, I mean, of course yeah. they did. I mean, that, that was the whole I think their perception is that the next person would not necessarily be as favorable to Trump. Yeah, I think that's possible. But that's the whole point of the Dominion lawsuit, right? The whole point is that Tucker, along with the rest of Fox, understood that there was a financial benefit in being positive about Donald Trump at Fox News, whereas privately he did not feel the same way. And I think an interesting question would be, if he does speak out separate and apart from Fox News, does he continue to believe that there's an advantage to being pro-Trump or pro-Trumpism, or does his independence from the network mean that there's a different kind of narrative that's coming out of him uh, as an individual? I I'd be interested to see it. Don't know if we'll get the chance, but we'll have more rising for you right after this. A new round of the Twitter files exposes how journalists, academics, intelligence operatives, military and government personnel align to censor and curb freedom of expression. Andrew Lowenthal served as executive director for NGO Engage Media that supposedly was devoted to digital rights and freedoms, but he says that throughout his 18-year tenure, he discovered it did anything but. And he took to his Twitter account, Network Effects, to reveal what's been kept under wraps, like a $1 billion contract the Department of Defense awarded to counter misinformation and also the partnership of big names, including Madeleine Albright, executives of software companies like Microsoft, media outlets, social media giants, and a slew of others.
Part of his expose included how an effort was waged to sift through COVID-19-related misinformation, and the people involved boasted about collecting 11 billion tweets and over 100 terabytes of social media data since 2020 that they deemed mis- and disinformation research activity. What do you make of this, Robbie? So this is a lot uh, more of, you know, what we've been seeing throughout the Twitter files, a very, you know, nebulous web of some explicit law enforcement or law enforcement partnership agencies, social media content moderations, media organizations, and a bunch of NGOs and some academic organizations like Stanford um, coming together, having a lot of conversations on email chains, on, on calls about how to handle, you know, first election-related misinformation, uh, you know, Russian influence stuff, and then ultimately a lot of COVID stuff, what they should do. A lot of content being flagged for deletion, being suggested to the content moderators at Twitter, like, you should do something about this. It's wrong. It's dangerous. It's everywhere. Um, from a, in a direction that is very ideological and, and uh, I think, not necessarily beneficial to the discourse. Um, like I'm seeing, so in this specific disclosure, it's mentioning the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which is, I believe, a British nonprofit that I've tangled with before. And yeah, they, they're flagging. Uh, so, so they're in here, yes, yeah, sending emails to Twitter moderators saying, hey, here's, please find an attached list of pages and groups, accounts, channels we identified as forming the anti-vax industry online in our recent report. Um, we say that this has grown to 58 million. They're f the, the following for these groups is 58 million. They are promoting distrust in official media advice. How dare they? Uh, they seek to persuade your users to take dangerous actions based on misinformation, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This center, I remember because they said, they, they flagged a bunch of right-wing websites as, as like so dangerous because their, their numbers were like, I forget exactly what the statistics was. It was like they were claiming that 70% of all bad content on Facebook has to do with just a couple uh, conservative sites. And Facebook read the report and was like, this is BS. This isn't true. So it, mm -hmm. again, the people charged with gatekeeping who are, who are like, we're on top of misinformation. We're going to police it. They, they can be clumsy, too. Some, I'm sure some of the things they flagged were very bad and things that Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, would have and should have and ought to have taken action against under their own policies. But, uh, but it's, it's still a little, more than a little uh, disturbing to me, the level of coordination that was going on behind the scenes between all these different, very ideologically motivated interest groups. I guess I'm of two minds about this. On one hand, to the extent that Twitter files, generally speaking, not this particular report, point to a very substantial coercion or persuasion campaign from government agencies like the FBI to encourage them to take down information which was not only very material to the outcome of the 2020 election, but which was also true. And to the extent that the FBI, government agencies, put so much pressure, you know, because there was such trust in these agencies and because of how heavily they leaned on Twitter, for Twitter to take actions that affected the outcome of politics inappropriately and silenced a story that had journalistic legitimacy, that is obviously a significant problem. But I will say that some of the reports that are now coming out and that have come out since the, some of the initial Twitter files disclosures have the air of, uh, did you know that NGOs were bad? 
<laughs> Did you know that a lot of NGOs were funded by interest groups that don't necessarily have your interests at heart, that they are political, that they are neoliberal, that they, you know, and, you know, maybe people don't know. And maybe they thought that NGOs were just benevolent and truly searching for speech and goodness and all of that. And so these reports are useful to them, but the kind of bombshell framing of some of it, I find to be less persuasive because it's not especially shocking to me that interest groups have interests and they lobby tech companies in advance of their interests. It's a lot less pernicious from my perspective than let's say the FBI. Now I would also say that a lot of the story and some of the pushback that some parts that Twitter files have received is that Twitter, Facebook, and the example that you just mentioned were under all of that pressure, but ultimately declined to act on it. So then the story becomes non-government group, NGO, tries to get Twitter to do something and Twitter doesn't, which starts to feel a little bit like a non-story and, and a generalized complaint about the mm -hmm. existence of interest groups that don't share my interests. And while there is a substantive conversation to be had about lobbying dollars and the extent to which some of these NGOs might get funding from sources that we should have complaints about, and you know what 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 mechanisms are in place at institutions like Twitter and Facebook to make sure they don't fall for things like the Hunter Biden story suppression in the future, the sum of the framing of this seems to me to be feeding into a conspiratorial mindset that's not very action-oriented and geared toward making well, modifications to protect the public and free speech, and more to creating this idea that there are particularly left-leading free speech vampires out there that are out to get you. There's a weird reference to FBI people who also have they, them, and their pronouns. I don't know what that has to do with anything. So I'm, I'm inclined to be sensitive to, yes, speech shouldn't be restrained. The FBI story was a mistake. But I, 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 this is like diminishing returns on some of this reporting for me at this point. What I am most struck by with each subsequent revelation is, you're right, the, 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 the jaw on the floor stuff, we're a little bit past that now. But how big this club is that you're not in, that we're not in. Absolutely, so, that's there, true. The club yeah. has in it the social media moderators, a lot of people in government, a lot of people in NGOs, a lot of academics, and a lot of people in the media. I mean, on these emails, and again, I, the content of these emails in many cases is benign, but they are routinely all talking about content moderation and misinformation, and they all includes the editors of magazines like Rolling Stone in here, um, New York Times people, Washington Post people. They all got together at Aspen and like wargamed what a hack and leak operation would look yeah. like from the standpoint of the hack and leak operation being false. And then, an, and then an actual one happened, and they all thought it was going to be false, the Hunter Biden's uh, laptop, but it was true. And I, that, look, that's interesting. Even You're right. You don't, don't turn into a conspiracy thing. But the, uh, the amount of coordination between all of these, uh, these entities—and again, this doesn't actually make me hostile to Twitter and Facebook. It makes me more sympathetic to their plight, because they're in this room just being bombarded with the same message over and over again from all these forces, and knowing if 
they don't do what they're being pressed to do, then there's going to be, as there was frequently, negative articles about the companies in those magazines and newspapers about how they're not taking the threat of Russian disinformation seriously enough. That's what we saw with that Hamilton 68 list mm -hmm. over and over again. Here's the list of Russian bots that Twitter n knows about and they're not doing anything about. Yeah. That was all made, that was not true. Yeah. I, so I, that's my concern. And I, and I hate that concern. Yeah. And look, if it is if it is news, I don't mean to diminish it, but people should absolutely know that all these folks went off to elite institutions, half of them are Harvard.edu mm -hmm. addresses, and they all are still friends, and they talk about each other, they, they talk to each other, and they have class interests that aren't yours. If that's news, let's let it be news. And it's definitely important and salient for a lot of issues that, that are about why our political system never attends to the interests of working people. But that is an issue broadly speaking, and that, that's not to minimize that it should be a concern, but it's 100% true that everybody went off to elite institutions, which they're now gatekeeping from you because they don't want you and your children to have access to them. Mm -hmm. And they have lifelong relationships where they are able to do each other's favors and curry influence with each other for the rest of their lives. That is 100% factually true. Yeah. Mar uh, incredible to see it, though, laid bare like this. Sure, to sure. Agree. More rising right after this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earned blowback online after he claimed during a recent interview that he didn't force anyone to get vaccinated. Let's watch. Since the Spanish flu, my responsibility was to keep as many Canadians alive as possible. And all of the scientists and the medical experts and the researchers, not just in Canada, but around the world, understood that vaccination was going to be the way through this. And therefore, while not forcing anyone to get vaccinated, I chose to make sure that all the incentives and all the protections were there to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated. And that's exactly what they did. We got vaccinated to a higher level than just about any other of our peer countries. And that's why we had a less deadly pandemic. So I think he's being rightly blasted because he did say something there that is not true. He said, while not forcing anyone to get vaccinated, that is simply not true. The truckers were forced to be vaccinated. They later reversed that policy. But, uh, but you were going to be required, if you're going to be a truck driver coming to Canada, you're going to have to be vaccinated. Uh, so that's, like, that, that claim is false, which, is, which gets so frustrating about people like in Trudeau's position who are railing, and earlier in, the, in the, that clip, he's railing against misinformation and disinformation and how harmful it is and how dangerous speech is because people are just saying things that are wildly untrue. Wouldn't it be better if you had czars of truth to guard against anybody <laughs> saying anything that was wrong? But the people that would appoint themselves to be the czars ritualistically say things that are not true about pa the pandemic and every other subject because we are fallible and we are all prone to error and that's why you're supposed to generally support a climate of free speech and letting people speak because there's no way to just put the person who's right about everything in charge of deciding what you're allowed to say so i i it's it's shameful that he would say that. So I think that his argument would be and you heard him make it a little bit there that you know, he was creating incentives uh, 
carrots rather than sticks to encourage people to get vaccinated. And that technically, I think there was a, a mandate for public sector employees. There was obviously the whole uh, Michigas with the, the truckers boycott. Um, but technically, if you were willing to not do that job, to quit a job, right. to not enter a certain kind of public space. <laughs> you have no employment if you wanted to be uh, sure. If, if he means it was voluntary because he was not sending jackbooted thugs to lock up people for refusing to be vaccinated, sure. Yes. But he was not giving you the freedom to be employed in yeah. several professions. And and I, I, I think that and I, and other kinds of mandates were promulgated by the territories, but not by the federal government. Yes. So you can read that as um, kind of judging the truth, which I think is completely fair. But I do think that opens up a, a, a broader conversation about what the civil, civil liberties line should actually be. I really do wish that earlier in COVID and now there had been a conversation about what it means when there is a public health interest and a certain kind of compliance and how far due to that interest states are ethically able to go to encourage a certain kind of behavior. I've been very consistent throughout saying I wish the government had offered a lot more in the way of carrots rather than sticks. In other countries, people were sent food to their homes to encourage them to be able to stay home. You're given a social safety net and support that allow you to, to not be at your job. And there was obviously some of that during COVID. Um, but to say I'm not gonna, you're not going to risk eviction and be homeless or unemployed or not be able to pay your bills because you're staying home, the government acknowledges that you're taking this hit for a public good, and therefore we're going to compensate you and make sure that you're made whole. I think that kind of a posture is very different from one where you're suddenly asking people to internalize all of these downsides of restricting their behavior. So who knows what would have happened in that instance? Who would have known if there had been more free sending out of tests and high quality masks and food and other kinds of provisions? But, you know, are we are we also in agreement that there perhaps are instances where the public threat is so significant that something akin to a mandate does need to happen? For example, the way that we mandate various vaccines be taken for children who enter their public schools. Well, right. That has an actual—and, you know, there are some people who think those are not proper anyway. In fact, some Republican state legislators are, I think, seeking to undo them. So I, I'm not going to pretend there wasn't a debate about that sure. prior. There was. But at, at least the argument is for a public health benefit. That's the argument they tried to deploy for the COVID vaccine, but it just turned out it did not at all meet that standard of, of significantly protecting uh, a third party if you're vaccinated. And of course, there was always good reason to suspect whether people like truckers who are, you know, driving, who, who are in trucks by themselves, uh, it, it, were at risk of exposing tons of people right. to COVID I, if they were vaccinated, I, if, I, if they weren't I vaccinated. I largely agree with that, but I don't want us to memory hole the extent to which one of the arguments was that the hospitals, our public health infrastructure, were being overwhelmed because so many people were being hospitalized with COVID. So some of the third-party risk isn't that you're going to transmit the disease, which the vaccine never really significantly prevented, but that even if it's not just a you issue, it's not just a personal issue, if my choice not to take the vaccine causes there to be such an overflow with the hospital that people who need a liver transplant or cancer treatment or whatever mm -hmm. can't access that because the public health infrastructure is overburdened. Sure. And, and look, and vaccinating um, at-risk people, older people, uh, significantly reduced the risk of hospital overcrowding because those are the people that were wildly disproportionately likely. There was a, 
uh, David Wallace Wells, who interviewed Fauci yesterday, you know, put it in his article. He's written about this previously. We still, it is difficult to convey with words just how egregious the age skew of, of severe COVID is. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and many, and because of the increased risk, many, many elderly people in this country did get vaccinated. In fact, the overwhelming majority of them. And, and that was good. And, and couldn't the vaccine pitch be a little bit more individually tailored? But what they went with at the time, what was so, you got to get this so that the risk of anyone else catching yeah. it goes down. You know, do that to protect the people around you. Yeah, to protect your grandmother. And that just wasn't. Yeah, if it comes that out that they true. knew <laughs> that the vaccines weren't effective in limiting transition, transmission and they still push that narrative, I would be very upset about it. If they hoped it had had that effect and they pushed that narrative kind of optimistically, I will still be upset about it, but it doesn't seem quite as nefarious. Um, and I do think there's, there's, there's some extent to which they were waiting, waiting and seeing it and rolling out vaccines very quickly and didn't entirely know the effects. Given that ambiguity, I would have liked to have thought that they wouldn't go so hard on the public shaming narrative that mm -hmm. said, if you don't get the vaccine, it's because you're selfish, it's because you don't care about your neighbor, you don't care about your family, et cetera. That, that seems to me to be a real right. messaging. I mean, there were a lot fire. of people who were skeptical that it was going to stop cases at the time, which was contrary to what the health officials were saying. So the fact that were those people just accidentally right, or was there a you know good basis based on the fact that other you know the flu vaccine actually doesn't even stop you? Well, the maybe first it lowers strain, your... the the efficacy of the first strain and the first vaccine right. dose did seem to play out a little bit differently and a little bit more in favor of what was predicted than right. the later strain. I mean, it held up for a while, but if, and as Fauci conceded in that article yesterday, he said he expected the protection to be. A, a essentially decades of protection mm -hmm. rather than, as it turned out, probably a, 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 a yeah months of. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I got my breakthrough case what four ish months mm -hmm. after my my original shot. So yeah, you know. Yeah, well, uh, he's getting, getting a lot of heat for this, and I hope there's some reflection on the words that we use and whether yeah. or not making these kind of broad claims um, is going to be perceived as any kind of accurate versus disinformation of its own. Mm. We're rising after this. Speculation continues to swirl about what prompted Fox News to nix Tucker Carlson, TV News' most popular host. What is not a question, however, was how he feels about the United States' involvement in China and Taiwan. Here are a few clips from monologues he wrote in the months leading up to his ouster. Let's watch. Taiwan is not a U.S. ally. In fact, Taiwan may be the only country in the world the Biden administration believes does not have the right of self-determination. Quote, we do not support Taiwan's independence. Wait a second, they're against democracy? You thought they were for democracy, right? They're always throwing democracy at you. Turns out they don't mean it, not that you ever thought they did. So the one thing you can be certain of is that Nancy Pelosi did not fly all the way to Taiwan to signal that the United States is going to defend that island from a Chinese invasion. We're not going to do that. We're not in a position to do that, even if we wanted to do that. We've already sent too many of our surface-to-air missiles, for example, to Ukraine. The United States is a direct combatant in a war against Russia. As we speak, American soldiers are fighting Russian soldiers. So this is not a regional conflict in Eastern Europe. This is a hot war between the two primary nuclear superpowers on Earth. And yet this war has never been formally declared. It has not been authorized by Congress. 
And for that reason, this war is a violation of American law. It is a crime. Tucker Carlson's criticism did not go unnoticed. Independent journalist Michael Tracy tweeted, quote, Remember, a reminder, rather, that in recent months, Tucker had become the only prominent figure in U.S. broadcast media who expressed skepticism of the U.S. war posture in both Ukraine and Taiwan. Please name another prominent figure in U.S. broadcast media who took such a view on these critical issues. Michael joins us now to elaborate on how Tucker's opinions might have affected his fate at Fox. Welcome, Michael. How's it going? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us. You know, so some people have argued, and we talked about this yesterday, that with the somewhat, you know, the ambiguity around what happened to Tucker Carlson, there are, there is an incentive to kind of project whatever whatever your personal uh, project is onto him as a rationale to kind of give it a little bit more juice, right? And I've seen people across the ideological spectrum with various interests doing this. What's your case for why you think that substantively his his posture here on U.S. Uh, military military uh, involvement in Taiwan and Ukraine? could really have affected his standing at the network? Well, first, I should just acknowledge off the bat that I've been a semi-regular guest on Tucker Carlson, and so it could very easily be alleged of me that I'm just making a purely self-interested argument for why I'm now bemoaning that it's probably marginally less likely that I'll be invited on broadcast TV. Not that that was a huge facet of my identity or anything, but once you're on TV ever. I don't know if you guys have experienced this. People just assume that like that's what you organize your life around and think that all your motives can be discerned to reflect your, you know, passionate desire to be back on, you know, Fox at 8:23 p.m. or something. <laughs> that's not really what drives me, but I do happen to notice over the years that Tucker would be the only person of any prominence who has one of these very influential positions on national television media to invite not just me, but a bevy of different people who had a slightly less mainstream or less conventional perspective on a variety of different key foreign policy issues and domestic issues as well. But usually those in issues interfaced with the foreign policy issues. So on the questions of Ukraine and Taiwan, um, Especially after, and not, I'm not a regular viewer, I have to admit, but especially after Nancy Pelosi made her trip to Taiwan last August, it did seem as though Tucker had some substantive, maybe reevaluation of his general posture on the question of a U.S. China war. Was Taiwan sufficiently within U.S. interests that the U.S. should pledge? or po at least kind of uh, posture as though it's going to wage war in its defense putatively. Um, and, and however much skepticism he expressed to whatever gradation, he did deviate fairly noticeably from just the mainstream view on China and Taiwan, which is just basically unthinking acceptance of the inevitability of a war um, with China. And so I, I can't make a direct causal connection between his deviations on foreign policy issues, namely China and uh, Russia at the moment, with his ouster from Fox, because I don't have enough information to mm -hmm. make such a direct causal assertion. It would be nice if I did have that information. So if you're out there and you have that information, feel free to leak it to me <laughs> and I'll make sure to publicize it. Um, but one can infer and just note observationally 
that the sole figure of any prominence in national broadcast media who has questioned orthodoxy, not just on Ukraine, which you see some Republicans doing just out of, out of a partisan reflex, but also on Taiwan, which suggests a more thoroughgoing kind of philosophical aversion to these interventionist projects. Yeah. The only person who could be relied upon to regularly question mainstream suppositions on these issues was just ousted from his perch at a national TV network. So that's something worth pointing out, I think. Yeah. Uh, like you, Michael, I have been on Tucker Carlson's show a number of times, uh, in some cases, to discuss uh, this non-interventionist foreign policy view that we share and that uh, Tucker shares. Uh, and I'm on other you know, Fox programs as well, for full disclosure. Uh, the it, Tucker has always explained the evolution in his foreign policy thinking, to me at least. I, you know, I know him a little bit, not really, really well, but I did work for him a number of years ago, in a way that made sense to me, saying that you know, he was someone who, who had non-interventionist instincts. The Iraq war happened. He supported it. He felt bad, and I think even ashamed of that immediately. He realized that was a catastrophically bad idea, and then really did reorient his thinking around the, the acknowledgment of what a huge mistake that was, and making sure he wouldn't make that mistake again on future foreign policy questions like like Libya, now like Ukraine, Taiwan, et cetera. And, uh, and I, I think you're—and obviously, he, he is— the most prominent person, and in some cases the only person on TV on any network. I mean, there, there's no one on the ostensibly progressive mainstream networks making the non-interventionist arguments that he's making. Well, there are no, uh, <laughs> there, there are no right, you would say there, real progressives allowed right, no on, real progressives, on mainstream but, uh, left networks. Yeah, but uh, it is uh, it, it is interesting, and obviously, and obviously because of Tucker's prominence, he has pulled. The, uh, the, the thinking on the right much more in that direction over the last 10 years. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, where do you, is the effort to, to redirect Republicans toward non-interventionist, you know, going to be undermined somewhat by having Tucker on the sidelines? Well, one way to think about it is this, and Glenn Greenwald has made this point, but also, while Tucker was on the air, has he raised this point? And I've had the same thoughts and probably raised the same points as well at various times. Sean Hannity, ostensibly, should engender just as much fury from Democrats and liberals as Tucker Carlson, right? Because Sean Hannity, if anything, is an even more dedicated Republican partisan than Tucker Carlson. But he doesn't and pretty much never has, at least for the same, at least for the past, you know, five, six years, provoke that kind of antipathy from Democrats, progressives, etc. Now, why is that? Well, it can't be because Sean Hannity is like more sympathetic to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris than Tucker Carlson. It probably would be due to his unorthodox positions, meaning Tucker's unorthodox positions relative to Hannity, because Espousing those unorthodox positions probes and pries at the consensus view that has been erected within the opposition party that he's kind of marshalling himself against. And Sean Handy really poses no threat to that consensus. And one of the major ways in which Tucker Carlson has chipped away at the consensus, as opposed to a Hannity who has not, is on foreign policy issues. So just a few weeks ago, I happened to tune in. It was around the time when 
President Xi of China went to Moscow for his kind of landmark trip. Sean Hannity was in a panic, had Lindsey Graham on, of course, and they were both affirming their strong agreement that there was a new axis of evil, you know, invoking the same Bush era phrase that David Frum uh, famously coined. And basically uh, fulminating about the imminent specter of World War III. I mean, it couldn't have been more jarring if you actually take them seriously per the rhetoric that they're... Well, Michael, let, let me ask you and, this. And, and, and Tucker just wouldn't do that, right? So no really pushback to Sean Hannity having a segment like that, which is forecasting the onset of imminent global catastrophe. But Tucker Carlson has some sort of like slightly idiosyncratic or even significantly idiosyncratic take on some philosophical issue around foreign policy, and it's a giant, you know, indignant backlash. Michael, uh, there might not be many leftists on mainstream news, but they're certainly making their opinions known elsewhere. Uh, journalist, uh, left-leaning journalist uh, Ben Norton pointed out his, his argument, I want you to respond. He says, anyone claiming Tucker Carlson is anti-war is a useful idiot. He's just a neocon 2.0. The only reason he criticizes NATO's war on Russia is because he wants war on China instead. And then he put some videos in which Tucker was quoted as saying, if Russia ever joined forces with China, American global hegemony would end. In another segment, Tucker Carlson warns, quote, China is clearly a threat to our economy. And then he invited uh, Marco Rubio on and complained about China's stealing intellectual property from U.S. corporate operations. The lower third on that video said China is the real threat, not Russia. In another video, Tucker Carlson um, warns, quote, uh, after an interview with Marco Rubio, quote, so China is a threat, obviously, not simply to our economy, but to our predominance around the world, to our power and our values. Some people might look at that and say, well, there's plenty of evidence that uh, Tucker Carlson very much has antagonism toward China. And some people have argued that his posture is really about feeling kind of um, more culturally aligned with, say, Russia as a European nation than with China. And the distinction between Tucker and some other figures who might lump Russia and China together is that he's afraid of a Russian-China alliance and would prefer to have the identity of interest with a more European-oriented country. What do, you, what do you make of those kinds of arguments? Well, to say that China may be on the verge of usurping the U.S. as the preeminent global hegemon is not somehow an intrinsically neocon argument. You can even make that observation and favor it. Like somebody like Ben Norton, who wants a multipolar world, or I don't know that he necessarily has expressed that position in exactly those words, but say that you do want to dislodge the United States, the preeminent global hegemon, and China's the vehicle for doing so, you could celebrate that potentiality. So I'm not sure what necessarily was said there that reflects some kind of ideological neoconservatism. I think the word, the term neoconservatism well, is vastly overused anyway. A willingness yeah. to go to war to prevent there from being an alliance with China and Russia. I mean, the whole posture of this is that... But did he say it, that? Wait a minute, but the whole posture of this is that a segment about criticizing Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is being framed as Tucker Carlson being against U.S. intervention in Taiwan. Another, another viewer could say... She's a Democrat. She's very unpopular. Many people were criticizing her choice to make that trip. It was done against the interests of even people in the State Department. You can't read that much into it. So is this all just reading tea leaves here? And is it fair to hold Tucker Carlson up as having some strong, well-articulated view against anti-interventionism in Taiwan when there doesn't, when there's evidence that's being bandied around in all sorts of directions? That's the question. 
Oh, I don't hold him up as having some firmly well-articulated manifesto-like view on non-interventionism in Taiwan. I don't know that he's expressed such a view. I don't have access to it. Um, I haven't spoken about it with him. I just see, yeah, these tea leaves suggestions of at least a baseline skepticism about the wisdom or prudence of certain U.S. interventionist measures, such as this kind of just presupposition about the inevitability of war with China over Taiwan that is basically the emerging bipartisan consensus that he maybe fleetingly questions. Maybe he doesn't take it exactly head on in the way that you would expect a more kind of strident opponent to do. But that's all that's really available in, in the public record unless mm -hmm. you're going to you know, ask him directly for a more lavishly articulated position. So, I mean, I mean, my, my perspective on this is never to say that I know that Tucker Carlson is this pure emblem of some kind of rigorously consistent anti-interventionist posture. I'm just noting that he's the only one who really even expresses hints of such a posture in a consistent manner. And yeah, sometimes it is commingled with kind of a anti-democratic party partisan reflex. I do think that part of the reason that probably spurred his willingness to embrace a bit more of a full-throated skepticism on the Taiwan-China question is that it became associated, at least at that time, last August, with Nancy Pelosi, the a figurehead of you know the San Francisco elite Democratic Party, and so that kind of gave a bit more space discursively, at least you know in the context of Fox News on on a primetime evening um, you know, broadcast hmm. to 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 kind of toy with and express at least in fits and starts some kind of semblance of an opposition to this emerging consensus because if you were just following along with standard consensus on that issue he would have parroted what mitch mcconnell said or marco rubio said or even like a josh hawley what he would have said which is that the u.s and and congress members have the solemn eternal right to go to taiwan and meet with whomever they please and china and the communist party are in no position to tell us what to do <laughs> And um, that's not what he did. He took a different angle on the issue that at least opened up a bit more, again, discursive space. Um, I can't believe I used that phrase, by the way, but <laughs> gave, well, gave a bit more, gave a bit more uh, sort of oxygen to those who might want to have at least the beginnings of a skeptical articulation sure. of a position on, on this issue. Point well taken. Uh, Michael Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks, guys. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has declined to testify before a Congressional Ethics Committee. In an accompanying statement signed by all nine justices, the court insisted that existing ethics rules surrounding financial disclosures are sufficient and that requiring further disclosures may constitute a risk to their personal security. The court also maintained that justice appearances before Congress are, quote, exceedingly rare, as one might expect in light of separations of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence. Roberts' refusal to testify comes just as new reporting from Politico reveals that just days after he was confirmed in 2017, Justice Neil Gorsuch quietly sold a $1.8 million property to a CEO whose law firm has since argued at least 22 cases before the Supreme Court. Gorsuch did disclose the property's sale 
file on financial reporting forms, though he did not say who it was to. That box was left blank. According to Politico, the company in question, Greenberg Traurig, has represented clients in 12 cases where Gorsuch's opinion is recorded. And of those 12 cases, he sided with the clients eight times, which, of course, means he did not side with them the other four. Um, I've read this story. I, I think there's much less to this one even than the uh, Clarence Thomas one, which also didn't quite sway me very much. He was, uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch was one of the co-owners of this property. He had like a 20% stake in it. Um, it was sold to this CEO, who, do, who, by the way, doesn't seem to be any kind of partisan or conservative necessarily. His donations have gone to um, majority to, to Democrats, um, to um, uh, Gillibrand received uh, some of his financial support. So um, there, there's no evidence of a personal friendship or even them knowing each other as there so, was in the Clarence Thomas case. I would just—this is a really important point. Partisanship is used by elites to obscure corruption and convince people to root for the corrupt folks who are on their side. So the idea that a partner at a law firm would be making unofficial donations to a Supreme Court justice because they're trying to pursue their own political agenda, however they, you know, vote because mm -hmm. they what tax break they want, as opposed to pursuing their professional agenda as someone who's deeply invested in the financial uh, fate of their company, I think is really missing the picture. Factually, this property had been on the market for two years, trying to be sold. Nine days after becoming a Supreme Court justice, it sold. And I would also point to the fact that knowing what the outcomes of these cases are isn't dispositive. Judges make all kinds of decisions, and they can weight the scale in terms of decisions on motions, discovery, et cetera, that can affect the outcome of the case and the tenor in the courtroom that may or may not yield the desired result. So I, I think that's neither here nor there. But the point of the matter is the justices are now saying that the current level of disclosures required are sufficient. When we now see, at least in this case, that despite there, there being rules in place currently, Gorsuch didn't fulfill them. He didn't, he didn't list the, um, the name of the person who had bought the property, even though he disclosed the sale of the property, generally speaking. So what are we saying here? That one, there's nothing to enforce Supreme Court justices following the ethics rules that have already been promulgated by Congress. Two, they are resisting any new rules that would force them into further compliance. Are we, are we just accepting as a society that Supreme Court justices, nine unelected people who have co-equal power with other branches of government, are supposed to provide meaningful checks and balances on our democracy, can be bought and influenced, and there's basically just nothing we can do about it, and we should feel good about it if we feel like the people who are buying them are on our respective political side. There's no real evidence of actual influence being exerted so far in the examples made. It's a lot of, maybe you think, I'm not even sure this one is inappropriate. Maybe the people have argued, I mean, there are aspects of Clarence Thomas, including that he's married to a very well-known Republican activist that I think should raise more questions, but there's no solution to this problem. Uh, I mean, if, look, if you want to no, subject- there, there uh, are solutions to the problem. The question is whether there's a political appetite for those solutions. Okay. And there's no political appetite for that, then, I should say. And I think that has something to do with whether or not there's public pressure for politicians to act on these sorts of things. And if I'm sorry, if, if media figures 
you know, like ourselves, are constantly saying, well, there's nothing to be done here. There's no political appetite. There's a way that we can create that reality when we don't make it clear what the public's options actually are. And so I, I'm just, I resist the idea that what is the case now will always be the case. Americans have decisions to make. They have decisions to make as to whether or not they want another matchup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, two deeply unpopular candidates. They have decisions to make and they can act in a Democratic primary. Similarly, there are any number of anti-corruption bills that are on the table that never get talked about, or that Nancy Pelosi can slide off to the side because she would be personally implicated in terms of the um, the insider trading bans. So over and over again, there are solutions to these kinds of problems. The question is whether or not the people in charge, elites, including elites in the media, are able to gloss over the extent to which we could be living in a different kind of world because they benefit from these kind of play play to to pay um, arrangements. You know, I did a radar on Clarence Thomas a couple of weeks back when this um, scandal broke, and I said, you know, ultimately, it's not whatever he did with uh, Harlan Crow that is the big red flag aha moment. It's the fact that in his uh, legal decisions, he's been writing very clearly that he doesn't think anything other than me saying, Robbie, sign this contract, I'm giving you $1,000, and in turn, you have to do whatever radars I tell you for the rest of the year. <laughs> he says anything short of like an actual quid yeah. pro quo, I'm giving you money in exchange for this behavior, isn't corruption. And I think that that really that really, you know, flies in the face of most people's experience. If someone holds the door for me, I feel vaguely obliged to them, you know? And these people are <laughs> taking millions of dollars worth of property off their hands. I mean, come on, Robbie. It, it has, there is an unofficial influence campaign that is, which, we talked about this in the Twitter files. Yeah. People sending emails saying, hey, I think you should do this, is perceived as being inappropriate when the person doing the asking is as powerful as the FBI. There's no asking here. There was no... That we are aware property, of. So, well, that would be something. This is a, a property changing hands of which he's one of many owners to someone who's the head of the firm. Like, that guy's not even the one arguing the cases. I mean, look, it's, if there was more evidence, then uh, then I would have something to evaluate. And if you're just going to say that— Well, they you won't know, Congre come before Congress. Okay, Congress— the, They've been asking Congress no, to be asked more no details about this. I have no problem Congress wants to exercise more authority here and subject the Supreme Court to better disclosure uh, uh, procedures relating to their finances, their property owning, their networks, I don't object to that. That's fine. Well, we unfortunately, the Supreme Court is objecting to it. They're saying they will not become all nine before. of them. Yeah, they will. All nine of them. It, it, it's a problem for all nine of them. I want to make this exceedingly clear. If you are corrupt, I don't care if you're a corrupt Democrat. I don't care if you're a corrupt Sotomayor. I don't care if you're a corrupt contingent Brown Jackson. I don't care if you're a corrupt Alito. The American people should not be standing for one of the most important branches of government to be corrupt in any way, shape, or form. This is a democracy issue, point blank, period. This should not be a partisan issue. And the fact that all nine Supreme Court justices are refusing to have any interrogation into these blatant ethics violations is a significant problem for all nine justices. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Health and safety factor here far outweighs the concern about uh, shutting people out or creating a barrier. 
That was Karen Freeman Wilson, president of the Chicago Urban League, speaking on Chicago-based WTTW News, dispelling any notion that COVID vaccine-related employer mandates would shut out black and brown communities. That comment was the subject of independent journalist Lee Fong's recent Substack piece examining how pharmaceutical giant Pfizer was behind funding groups like the Chicago Urban League, heavily lobbying for COVID vaccine mandates. He found that Pfizer gave $100,000 to the organization, which is not the only organization Pfizer gave cash to. Now, here to discuss the expansive financial effort to Pfizer went to in supporting groups like the Chicago Urban League is author of that piece, Lee Fong. Great to see you, Lee. Hey, Robbie, thanks for having me. Yeah. Yes, yeah, we're doing uh, just fine. <laughs> Exciting week it's been. Uh, tell us more about your reporting and, and what you've found here. We're very interested in efforts that you know all sorts of individuals and organizations made, but particularly Pfizer itself to promote the vaccine. Yeah. So this piece looks at exclusive documents um, that detail Pfizer's donations to outside third-party organizations, and really looking at their role in lobbying for policies that compelled people to take uh, the COVID vaccine. You know, in 2021, there were a number of city, state, and uh, the federal government's COVID vaccine mandate, um, com really compelling and coercing people to take the vaccine. There were not exemptions for prior infection or natural immunity. Um, this was a very controversial policy. And part of the lobbying effort to build public support and policymaker support uh, for this COVID vaccine mandate uh, was the role of these community groups, uh, civil rights groups, uh, medical societies, public health organizations. Um, a lot of these groups were very visible in pushing for the mandate. And like the Urban League was one of them, they did not disclose that they were funded at the time by Pfizer. And, you know, I was looking at some of these specialized grants. They were funded uh, in particular to promote uh, immunizations, promote the vaccine, to kind of dispel myths about the vaccine, uh, to engage in legislative strategy um, you know, related to Pfizer. So, you know, this is kind of a, a longtime strategy of big pharma. Drug companies have um, been under the rate, been under scrutiny for their role in funding third party groups that kind of create the appearance of public support uh, for their products. But this is kind of an extreme example because, you know, this is the most lucrative uh, pharmaceutical product perhaps in human history. This is a very controversial policy opposed by many civil libertarians, labor groups, and others. Um, but the role of Pfizer funding this outside support for the mandate hasn't been disclosed until now. Yeah, this is such an interesting one because earlier in the pandemic, there was this sensitivity to the idea that black Americans in particular have had a complicated relationship with the you know, medical uh, industry because of instances like the Tuskegee experiment, being experimented on, injected with a disease, not being told, et cetera. And that the way, the posture that the government took toward encouraging people to make use of a vaccine, which did dramatically lower hospitalization rates, especially in those early days before people had had um, any kind of booster or protection at all, uh, was to not browbeat black people or not to kind of smear them the way that I think that some more conservative-leaning people who objected to the vaccine were smeared, but to be sensitive to those concerns and to uh, ally them by talking about safety and all of those other kinds of things. That shifted 
at a certain point. Um, and the, there was much more of a cudgel that was used or an implication that, um, you know, talking about the disparities in vaccines between black people and other people was seen as politically inconvenient. Because what, you know, if we're saying that anti-vax or non-vaxxers are bad Republican racists, what do you do with this black population who's also expressing some concerns about vaccine hesitancy? So, so having a group particularly a, a, a black-oriented group, receive funding does does help to paper over some of those tensions. And I, I also am, am concerned about it because so many, I would say, black groups are disproportionately underfunded, have fundraising concerns. We see this with black electeds, that they tend to come from poorer districts, have a tougher time earning money, and do tend to be more susceptible for those reasons to taking money from various corporations. When there is, at time, a difference of interest between the people who are giving the money and the groups that they are supposed to serve. And I wonder if you've seen anything about whether or not there were any concerns about black black people in Chicago potentially losing their jobs, having economic consequences as a result of not wanting to not wanting to take the vaccine and being subject to an actual mandate. No, we, you know we know that the mandates uh, created the firing of thousands of workers across the country. I don't know if we have a racial breakdown, but we do know that, you know, in municipalities like New York City and, and D.C., San Francisco and others, um, there was uh, kind of a, a racial disparity in, in terms of who was taking uh, the, the vaccine, who was not kind of abiding by these mandates. Uh, there was kind of a disproportionate effect. But, you know, you're, you're right. There, there was kind of early, early in the pandemic, there was a concern and I think a very nuanced discussion about you know, what are the legitimate fears and, and concerns around the vaccine? How do, what's the most kind of effective way to talk about these issues and, and to persuade? But by 2021, uh, summer of 2021, uh, like a lot of the, the COVID discourse, it was very polarized, you know, just like how in the media, uh, any kind of discussion around the origins of COVID became very polarized. You know, if you had kind of any suspicions about a lab leak, um, you were condemned as, you know, a bigot or, you know, a Trumper. Um, you know, concerns around vaccine mandates uh, similarly became polarized. You know, it, it, you, you were condemned as a, a racist or, you know, an extremist or an anti-vaxxer. Um, you know, there are many benefits to the vaccine. You know, now that we see um, we, there's a lot of research and studies showing that uh, the Pfizer vaccine and others reduce kind of the severeness, especially in elderly, uh, more kind of uh, vulnerable populations. Um, there's, there's great benefits to that. But rather than having kind of a detailed discussion based on the scientific research, it became kind of, a um, again, a polarized discussion of, you know, you're either with us or against us. Um, not looking at the research showing that, look, um, a lot of the, the claims around um, when from proponents selling the vaccine saying, you know, this will end the pandemic. Once you take the vaccine, uh, you know, there's no chance of transmission. You can't get COVID. That was wrong. That was not supported by the evidence that those those claims. Um, by uh, uh, the administration and others um, were disputed at the time. And now, you know, years out, it looks clearly false. Um, but, you know, we're in a moment of, of, of kind of hysteria around these issues and you couldn't have a sober discussion. Yeah, that is the crux of this matter that 
the people pushing the va not just the vaccine, but but being open to policies actually requiring it in the various places it was required. It was required for many workers. It was required for some schools. It still to this day is required the bivalent booster on some college campuses. When they go back in the fall, they'll have to take it. And the, the justification was a public health benefit, not for yourself, but you have to take this because this is going to drive down cases. In the long run, the people making that, the public health establishment, the government health scientists and advisors, and Pfizer itself, its boosters, and, and, and the media, and you know, everyone pressuring tech companies to, to toe that line on social media, like you said, that all ended up being wrong. And I don't know if there's, there's going to be any reckoning. You know, Dr. Fauci, there was an article, he was interviewed uh, in the New York Times yesterday. We talked about it. And he, he's asked some pretty pointed questions about that, about her, about her immunity, about all sorts of things. And, uh, and I saw, I sensed very little accountability from him uh, personally. You know, you've been on kind of the looking at the, the, the Pfizer side of things. Can, can you sense any reckoning within the company itself uh, on, how, on how this vaccine was, was not necessarily sold under false pretenses, but certainly the, the necessity of requiring it was, was pushed under, under premises that turned out to be wrong? Well, there are a couple of things here. You know, when you're a big corporation, an oil company, a bank or a big tech company, you know, the public uh, is suspicious for a very good reason. You know, you're, these corporations exist to make profit, uh, not to serve the public interest. And so to build public support for their lobbying strategies, for their other kind of goals in society, they often use this playbook of funding outside groups with much more credibility, like here with, with Pfizer funding civil rights organizations and public health organizations. Uh, medical societies. And, you know, uh, in Congress, we're now seeing a, a lot of interesting questions being raised about the role the, of these um, COVID policies. Were they based on sound scientific and medical evidence? The problem here, I think, is tension around money and politics. Um, Republicans in Congress are, are, are quick to kind of investigate um, the CDC and other public health agencies, but they're a little bit more reluctant so far in investigating uh, big corporate interests. You know, they, they haven't really subpoenaed uh, the big biopharma uh, lobbying groups uh, like bio and pharma um, that, I, you know, I don't I haven't seen the kind of um, strident investigations of Pfizer itself. Um, I think there's a great opportunity to really understand um, the way that these policies were crafted, the role of large pharma corporations in shaping the public debate, shaping these regulatory policies, shaking, shaping even just the discourse by funding these groups that were very visible in the media um, back in 2021, 2022. Um, I think that's TBD. It's, it's, it's yet to be determined. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're on that beat, Lee. Thank you for always following the money so assiduously. I look forward to seeing your future reporting on this subject. Thanks for having me. More Rising after this. organization announced yesterday that there is a, quote, high risk of biological hazard in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, after one of the warring parties seized a laboratory holding measles and cholera pathogens, as well as other hazardous materials, according to a Reuters report. So this is very disturbing, uh, theoretically, at least. Uh, this is exactly the kind of thing we worry about. I remember it, it's similar to a discussion that got really 
polarized during the Ukraine, uh, ongoing Ukraine conflict. Tulsi Gabbard sounded the alarm about, uh, about bioweapons labs potentially being compromised and how that could be dangerous. And then that got called Russian disinformation. And then I looked into it and it seemed to be a perfectly legitimate complaint yeah. to me, perhaps overstated. But look, we're, we just had a pandemic rip through the earth and kill millions of people. And we're a little worried about uh, potential lab outbreaks right now. And I think many of us have questions about, is it safe to house dangerous infectious diseases in places that, for whatever reason, they could break out of. Maybe that reason is because the, com the, the, the government does not follow proper safety procedures or there's not enough accountability to know whether they're following proper safety protocols. Yeah. Or a theoretically war-torn area where, where a, a, a militia could take it over and release it. I mean, this is not a, this is not a crazy concern. Pathogens have broken out of labs. So it's, it's not a crazy concern. I would say, though, that it can be overstated. So it seems clear that, so, so part of the issue here was that the fighting broke out so quickly and things devolved so quickly that the scientists weren't able to secure the samples. There seems to have been some protocol where they do shut, lock down the samples or destroy those kinds of samples, but in this case, things broke out too quickly. So whether or not there needs to be some kind of policy change that could guard against that, whether there needs to be some kind of kill button that sends everything up in an incinerator if fighting breaks out, whether or not perhaps these kinds of labs should shouldn't exist in such unstable regions, those are all legitimate concerns. The kill button malfunctions in the Stephen sure. King classic, The Stand, okay. and then 99% of the world dies to the super flu. It's also worth noting, Robbie, in real life, that their concern about the samples that have been named so far are cholera and the measles. Measles does spread in an airborne way. Cholera does not. Um, so there's, I think, a limited amount of concern about how that can be weaponized. Also, cholera, regrettably, is relatively common, especially in, in um, less, less uh, developed in terms of infrastructure mm -hmm. regions. There was just a terrible cholera outbreak in Malawi, I think, that killed about 1,200 people. I mean, these kinds of things do happen, and there isn't the same amount of concern I think about that, that there should be, given a story as compared to a story like this, where it can be sensationalized and kind of linked into COVID in that particular way. So I don't want to downplay it, but I do also don't want to be overly alarmist about it. Well, I'm not trying to alarm anyone either, but it just goes to a fundamental question, like, why hold on to them? <laughs> Let's destroy these diseases. Why hold on well, to the them in unsafe conditions? This, this, isn't, this, isn't, this isn't a case where anybody has alleged there was gain-of-function research. I mean, remember with COVID, the problem is that they arguably created the, the, right. the disease in the first place. They manipulated it to make it more easily caught by human right. beings to study what would happen if something did mutate and, and go through the human population. Or potentially had an encounter with an animal that, would, that was unlikely to occur naturally, but they specifically sure. go into a cave and they sure. start picking up bats because they're going to bring them back for scientific experimentation, and then maybe sure. something like COVID happens but, even but, without the But this is a lab where you can go out and get cholera all over the place because a lot of people are still really suffering with that and study it to, make, to, to figure out facts about its transmission and how to keep people from getting sick and dying from it, something that, again, a lot of people do in a lot of places in the world where they don't have access to clean drinking water. So... I mean, I, I guess my pushback to some of the alarmism here isn't it to say that there is definitely a risk profile here and you have to make a risk reward, uh, war, 
award assessment that might not favor, let's say, gain-of-function research. But I'm concerned that an instance like this, there's a lab where they're studying a relatively common disease, they're not creating anything new, that the public reaction might be, we shouldn't study this anymore, it's concerning. And is that inconsistent with the view that folks have about something like, like let's say, gun ownership, where people will say, well, I have legally obtained my gun, I'm a responsible gun owner, X, Y, and Z that happened elsewhere is not my fault. Well, legally obtained guns are sometimes stolen often stolen or are trafficked in various ways. You know, are, are you, or should we say no one's ever allowed to have a gun because some bad actors mishandle their guns or, you know, break, break some rule unknowingly with their gun or legally buy a gun and use it to shoot up a bank the way um, that young man did just a few weeks ago? Well, I certainly wouldn't make that argument. Lots and lots and lots of Democratic-leaning people make exactly that argument, that it should be the liability for even selling the guns should be prohibitive, all of those kinds of things. I, I like those. Okay. I, I think there's an interesting well, conversation to be had about manufacturer liability in that space and whether or not that would create safety mechanisms, mm -hmm. market incentives and safety mechanisms. Why protect gun manufacturers? Uh, in a way that other manufacturers of dangerous materials aren't protected. But that's that's a, a separate right. argument. So I agree with you. Obviously, a lot of you know liberals and, and others make those kinds of arguments. But I'm pointing to an inconsistency where, like it or not, for whatever reason, a lot of the um, uh, crit critics of gain-of-function research happen to be right-leaning. And people who are more gun advocates also happen to be right-leaning. And there is, I think, a different assessment of the risk-reward profile there that leads people to say, well, we shouldn't do any scientific research because of COVID, but the risks apparent in gun ownership no, do, are treated in the same way. We should do scientific research. Is this specific research worth the risk is the question. And, and again, yeah. now we're talking about the gain-of-function. Yeah. Maybe holding on to cholera in a laboratory is not really risky at all, given it's fairly widespread, although still holding it in a laboratory in an area that <laughs> could potentially be overrun by civil war and strife still seems not a good idea to me. Maybe, you know, house that somewhere else. But uh, Dr. Fauci actually has reacted to this. Definitely want to play that. This morning he said he's not totally on board with the ending of the national COVID emergency. Let's watch. We changed. Going forward, you know, the public health emergency is actually ending in about two weeks. Do you think it's the right time for that to end? You know, there's obviously debate about that, but I think in general we really need to move forward so long as we don't leave a big gap in being able to take care of the people who may not have available to them now the things that were very, very important to them at the time that we had all of the issues that were related to the emergency. We want to be able to have a, some sort of a safety net for them to be able to get drugs and to be able to get vaccines so those things don't fall between the cracks. If we take care of that, I think that it's important to move forward. I mean, everybody wants this outbreak behind us. We want to make sure we don't just forget about it completely because we still have about 150 deaths per day and there's still a lot of virus out there. So we can't just completely forget about it. We got to continue to pay attention to it. Yeah. 
Sorry, that was Fauci uh, reacting to the end of the COVID emergency, not specifically to the uh, Sudan situation. Uh, my mistake on that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. That's kind of a soft critique of Biden and the choice to um, end some of the COVID-era protections by bringing it into the COVID emergency. Uh, Fauci saying there, and a statement that I think is relatively uncontroversial, that people who still want to avail themselves uh, of protections against uh, the worst consequences of the vaccine, of uh, the virus, rather, hospitalization and the like, should still be able to access vaccines, boosters, whatever prophylactics become available. And there's some concern that ending, you know, the, the, the government saying COVID is over and taking a step away will make some people who are still at risk and the 150 people who, a day who are still dying increasingly vulnerable. Is that especially controversial? Well, I, I, no, I don't know. I think most people feel like the end should have come a lot earlier, or, or in fact, Biden said it months ago that the pandem pandemic is effectively over, but some policies remained in place, including ludicrously the inability for people to travel to the U.S. Mm -hmm. unless they're vaccinated. Um, I, I've said again and again and again, I, I, I can't believe, I mean, I, I can believe it, but it's still shocking to me uh, that college campuses, et cetera, are still requiring the bivalent booster for their student populations. So, but but it is uh, worth reflecting on that in in many 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 ways. In in fact, in most respects, the pandemic does certainly feel over to me. Doesn't it feel over to you? Well, specifically, Fauci was referencing the fact that 150 people still die every day, mm -hmm. and potentially some of those might be people who are not vaccinated, and we have to ask the question why. You know, people who are hospitalized dis are disproportionately not vaccinated. The effect, you know, the, the thing that the vaccine really did do was diminish the most extreme symptoms of uh, a COVID uh, diagnosis. So to the extent that there are people who want to avoid that outcome, and as the vaccines wear off, who knows how long that will take? We're still in the trial and error zone of knowing how long-lasting some of these interventions are. You know, the question is whether or not the government taking this posture and, and acting on the fact that so many people do want uh, COVID behind them is going to prevent them from offering the kinds of things that would help keep the uh, help people from being hospitalized and getting sick when they, in fact, opt for them. So, you know, I'm, I completely concede all the issues, all of the concerns about mandates. But are we so exclusively talking talking about mandates, that we're going to basically let the government rip out all of the protections that we were being offered, because we're, there's no room in the conversation to talk about, well, should 15 million people have been kicked off Medicaid? Mm -hmm. Should we have to pay for vaccines out of pocket if there is another wave and people don't want to be hospitalized and relatively young, uh, healthy people are being hospitalized and dying like we're happening in the early days of COVID? And are our frustrations with how the CDC handled this putting us in a mental space that prevents us from asking what the government actually still does owe to protect the population in public health emergencies going forward. I think, I think that's a legitimate question that Fauci is uh, bringing up there. Mm. Well, we will have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. just an outrageous story of government overreach involving a Minnesota retiree, Geraldine Tyler. She was behind $2,300 on property taxes, so her county seized her condo, sold it, but then kept every penny not only to satisfy her debt, but the entire value of the sale, according to a report from Reason Magazine. Now the U.S. Supreme Court is considering a case that asks whether this particular strain of government theft 
is constitutional. Better not be. <laughs> yeah, so to be clear, the details here are that her condo was valued at $93,000. Remember, she was $2,300 behind on her property mm -hmm. taxes, and then she was hit with another $13,000. She thought it was an unsafe penalty. area, so she had to move into another home, but she still had the condo, and she couldn't pay both, fell behind, and the government took the condo. So when the, they sold the condo for $40,000, meaning that after her uh, taxes and late fee and her penalties, there was $25,000 left over. And normally, in most states, they would return that money to you. But in about a dozen states in this country, these municipal, these these, these uh, governments are able to just keep the money. So there's this question about whether or not that qualifies as a government taking, which is prohibited by the Constitution, and also whether or not there's an argument here that she has, there's an Eighth Amendment violation of uh, a disproportionate, unreasonable right. fees here. And this is one of those ones that I think is, it's, I mean, it's written up in reason. It's obviously got very strong libertarian leanings, but the kind of civil rights implications of this are significant as well. ARP is backing her in this case. This is an issue that obviously disproportionately affects seniors and many people who are also not necessarily as cognitively competent to keep up with you know, payments and fees and things like that. It might not even be an issue of inability to pay, but it is just a failure to pay. And this happens so often with elderly citizens. And it's a way that governments that, you know, local governments that want to develop certain areas are often able to push out older communities because they can find people who've right. made these kind of administrative mistakes and really bring the book down hard on them. Right. And, and to be clear, in this article at Reason, you know, they, they quote a Pacific Legal Foundation attorney, which is the, the nonprofit that handles cases like uh, this, big friends of Reason Magazine, we quote and promote their work all the time. They mm. do great stuff on this front. Look, obviously, it, it's not, it's, it's sad, but if she's fallen behind on her payments, yes, the government can take her property. Yeah, but they, but that part. they can't take it and keep all of the proceeds from selling it. They can only keep the part that she owes. They're supposed to give her the rest. Um, this is closely related to uh, asset forfeiture, mm -hmm. which is a, a circumstance where the police will seize in the course of an investigation or an arrest. They'll seize all sorts of property. You know, if they arrest you at your home, they might take they might take everything of valuable they see in the house. They might take your car, yes. not give it back if it's a if it's you're arrested on the road, even if the assets they take have nothing to do with the underlying crime. Even if the crime is never proven and you're found innocent, they can hold on to those assets forever. It is so hard to recover assets that the police take yes. in the course of an investigation or arrest, even if you're completely innocent, even if you're found to be completely yep. innocent. People have lost, uh, it happens in a lot of drug cases mm -hmm. where um, you know, people you know, grow, legally growing medical marijuana mm -hmm. or uh, pot dispensary, something like that. Plants get taken, they cost a lot of money. The farming equipment gets taken. It's found that there's there's no conviction, there's no crime. They don't get that stuff back. People can people lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. That, yeah, sometimes it, poor people, yeah. it's their only modes of transportation is a car. Yep. The government won't give them back. Yeah, it's described by many as legalized theft, and police know that they can kind of yeah. wield the threat of stealing your assets. Because there are, there are cases where it, generally. The police just pocket that money, or, or whatever. The sometimes they don't even. Maybe they took your speakers, and they're gonna they're gonna have a better sound system at the station. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. That absolutely happens. It, it absolutely does. Um, billions of dollars of assets are seized every year by the police force. Yet another reason why I would argue there needs to be substantive police reform. Yes. Not only are the budgets for you know the kind of salaries going out of control. Um, there's a story right now out of New York where uh, Eric Adams has decided to close down uh, public libraries in order to save money for a budget that he, people have argued he's mismanaged that's largely gone to 
putting more and more money into the police force. So you're taking shutting down public services for budget bottom lines that aren't really geared toward keeping police uh, communities safer, but it does seem to be a sop to a constituency that is keeping him in office. There's a lot of criticism about that being made right now. But with all of the public back and forth about the role of the police, whether or not they're performing their duties, whether or not events like what we saw in Uvalde are indicative of how they're policing across the country, the gentleman that was um, shot in the story that we told yesterday uh, because he was pulled over for having a air freshener and for having expired place, all over and over and over again, people are questioning what the police are doing. And I think this is a really under, mm -hmm. under examined aspect of their routine practice. But it also ties in with these broader arguments I think that you make very well and frequently, Robbie, about the, the way that these state laws are rigged that really disenfranchise the financial interests of various people. And, you know, there is a lot of corruption that can happen, of course, in a government level. Again, it's, it's worth saying that in most states, the majority of states, something like this wouldn't happen. But the fact that this has been going on for so many years and is only now rising to the level of being reviewed by the Supreme Court mm -hmm. is pretty galling. Right. And, and it should matter, you know, when we talk about funding the police, for instance, well, what exactly are you funding? Are you funding, you know, are you, gonna, are you closing more murder cases because you're hiring more right. detectives? Or are you, you know, going through the rape kit backlog, or are you hiring more people who are gonna who are gonna raid legal pot dispensaries? Right. That kind of steal property from people. Right. Uh, from a conservative, you know, property rights perspective, this is not this is not a good thing. So let's be cautious about doing this. And in the meantime, absolutely, some states have banned these kinds of practices. All states should ban them. Uh, many uh, libertarian nonprofits, state-based organizations are have worked to do so, working in partnership with organizations like the ACLU, et cetera. Yeah. You know, this is a this is a good this is a feel good. Everybody yeah, can come together and oppose this, this kind of one. So it's just literal work that needs to be done. Yeah, check check out this story. A 76-year-old named Benny Coleman apparently lost his DC home over a. $134 bill, $134. The government sold his house for $197,000 and kept the profit. Ugh, that's disgusting. Benny it's ended obscene. up sleeping on the porch with it's dementia. It's obscene. Yeah. yeah, it's just theft. We're going to have to continue to, to follow this case and see how that turns out. Yeah, so this is going before, before the Supreme Court. Today. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, you could... Hopefully, again, because this is an issue that can unite people on the right who are concerned about uh, property rights and individual rights, yeah. et cetera, and and people you know of a progressive or liberal or democratic yeah, bent civil, who are civil liberties. Civil liberties, you know, it'd be great to have this be a nine zero or eight one yeah. or something. So yeah. we'll have to see. Uh, we'll have more rising right after this. Other people knew about this behind the scenes. Some, not all, but some of them in positions of power, influence, leverage, knew of this. They also knew that the safety of my children included keeping it private. So if you're familiar with the idea of extortion, then you know the feeling well. Uh, now, some of these 
threats were so thinly veiled that I'm frankly surprised you didn't all guess immediately. Stephen has a lot going on, I guess is the best way to say it. He has a lot going on, and that should be clear because people don't do stuff like this if there's not a lot going on in their lives. I would like to implore my audience and everybody that isn't paying attention to this situation not to condemn him, but to pray for him. That was conservative talk show host Steven Crowder announcing that he was going through a divorce and appearing to accuse another conservative commentator, Candace Owens, of doing something akin to extortion. Here's more. Some other uh, issues have been, uh, or I should say, uh, inferences have been more pernicious behind the scenes with demands and threats to use this information that they believe would be uh, so publicly embarrassing to me and my wife at a difficult time that it could be used, knowingly putting my children in harm's way. So to those self-styled Christians, conservatives, and allies, well, not in my book. Now, if you find yourself, I, I don't want to get into details, so this is going to likely be the only time I have to address this or want to address this. If you're asking yourself, hey, did X person or did Y person know? The answer is likely yes, which will be made alarmingly clear as this process of discovery continues. Uh, and it also, by the way, makes me that much more appreciative of those who did know about this and in understanding the best interests of my family, my children, kept their word and used discretion. Candace Owens responded on Twitter saying, quote, Stephen Crowder accusing me of extortion is so patently insane that it honestly makes me question how there are still people who cannot see how thoroughly undone he has become. This is not stable behavior. He is a man on a spiral. Outright bizarre and concerning. So we should do a little bit of a flashback here, what led to this level of acrimony between Candace Owens and The Daily Wire more broadly and Stephen Crowder. Uh, Crowder had had some weeks ago conversations, a very preliminary conversation with The Daily Wire about maybe coming aboard, Daily Wire being the conservative news giant entertainment um, uh, institution that features Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and Matt Walsh and some others. And Candace. And, and Candace Walsh, Owens. Yeah. Uh, so they had made a very just preliminary offer, like, well, here's what an offer might look like. It was bonkers bucks, millions and millions and millions of dollars. It was 50, the $50 million offer, right? I, yes. I, I believe so, yes. Uh, but it had some stipulations. And it was still, their point of view was, we're still going to negotiate it, but right. here's the, you know, the eye-popping number we're trying to, to hook you with, and then we'll try to reel in with negotiations. Crowder was insulted by it, not so much by the dollar figure, which is a huge amount of money, but that they would subtract from some of that if he ended up getting banned on several different social media sites, something he thought was quite likely. And in fact, he had, he had been banned before. He might have even been, been demonetized on mm -hmm. YouTube at the time. So then he's like, you're, try, you're, you're silencing me. You're, you're agreeing with big tech to silence me. You're colluding with them in mm -hmm. this effort of censorship. Aren't we fighting this as conservatives? And then they said, I think kind of reasonably, that we're not saying we endorse what social media is doing to you. We're trying to build an alternative platform. But you primarily would make money for us by being on those platforms. So you're, if you're just not, not going to be, if you're not making that much money, you're yeah. expecting us to just take a loss. But we could further negotiate it. But instead of you having that conversation with us, you, he secretly recorded surreptitiously Jeremy Boring, who's the head of the Daily Wire, and then he tried to embarrass them based on that. Yeah, and and he went full scorched yeah. earth against them, accusing them of like putting young conservatives, like treating them like they're on a plantation or something. Yeah. And part of the posture of this, right, was that he first 
publicly blew up the offer and said he was being treated really unfairly. Yeah. And he had a lot of public support until the actual number in the deal came out, because he was really posturing like they were trying to exploit him. They were undervaluing his worth. He, Like you say, he was like kind of trotting out all of these kind of mm -hmm. subordinates as like a proxy for how us working people are being treated. And then when everyone found out that what he was complaining about was $50 million, there right. was a lot of backlash in the other direction. Jeremy Boring did a very long, uh, involved, polite video uh, in no way in no part of that did he call on his audience to attack Crowder, do anything. I thought it was a very rational explanation of the dispute from their standpoint. Now, some of the hosts got pretty upset about, I think totally understandably upset, about uh, the tone Crowder had taken. Candace Owens leaned into, you know, that clip we we showed, that kind of very passive-aggressive. You know, He's I, got a lot going on. Got a lot going on, and I, yeah. I want you to, to pray for him. Right. And so then there was speculation about what that might be, yeah. and, you know, I, I, and I don't you know, want to get into people's personal lives, are their personal lives, and everybody has messy drama and whatever. Uh, for Crowder, it might be relevant. And obviously, it's not, it shouldn't be embarrassing at all that he's getting a divorce. Tons of people do that. Of course. Uh, it's totally fine. But he might perceive it to be something he would want to keep a secret because he is very socially conservative. His views are extremely socially conservative. He wrote uh, an article, I believe, for Fox News when he was getting married years ago about how they were going to save themselves for after marriage. They absolutely committed to that. Uh, and and now it's, uh, and, and he says in that video that he just made that this is not something he wanted, This suggesting it was chosen by the other party. Yeah, that's and what's so, so curious on. about this. I mean, but for him talking about his relationship and what is now a public divorce, and some of the insinuations made by Candace Owens, I just can't imagine that anybody would care. Even if even if Candace Owens insinuated that he has something going on, if he were, were like, I'm getting divorced, nothing to see here, folks, I, I don't see how that would reflect poorly on him or that most people wouldn't just say that's a thing that happens in the modern world and we can move on. Yeah. I mean, I do understand that he is conservative, and before his divorce became public, he is now going viral for this. He slammed no-fault divorce as a system under which, quote, if a woman cheats on you, she leaves, she takes half, and has been complaining on the internet about how he doesn't believe that you shouldn't be able to get divorced without having to, you know, prove mm -hmm. fault in the other party. And of course, a lot of, you know, people, more left-leaning people are taking that as an opportunity to dunk on him, saying he doesn't want his wife to be able to, he wants to have dominion over his wife in a really kind of regressive way. Yeah, he... Which, he talked about not supporting, he, he regretted the divorce laws being the way that they are, that it would be so easy, so easy for someone to get out of a marriage. So he was getting a lot of criticism. And, you know, he's, he's a combatant in the fray. He's, you know, he makes fun of people. He belittles people for, for various reasons all the time. So, you know, that, but I, I don't, I, I, I feel bad for him, honestly, if this if this was like a source of great, you know, personal shame, or he felt that like Candace Owens had this over him or something. But that's what's confusing. Well, I think he did feel that way because of his views on the subject. Right, but you know, if I subjectively believe something that isn't broadly understood, you know, I understand that it's, there's a sense of personal embarrassment for him, but the personal embarrassment is his own sense of failure in the marriage. Yeah. You know, that's, I'm not calling it a failure, but like, that seems to be where he's coming from. The threat that someone, a third party has over you is creating further embarrassment by making it public and making you the subject of public judgment. And maybe I just am not understanding yeah. the maybe conservative communities that he is a part of that might in fact judge him for this we're, divorce. We're jumping around the issue. I mean, 
Candace Owens says it's crazy to accuse her of doing something akin to extortion. And I'm not suggesting she did that in any legal sense or anything like that. But now, given what Crowder has conceded and watching what she said in that video, uh, yeah, that seems pretty, pretty um, cruel <laughs> to me. Yeah, cer uh, cer it certainly does. Something akin to extortion. It certainly does. I mean, the one other part of the video, of his response video that I reacted to, um, is the invocation of kind of family and safety as a reason not to have public discussions about things. And it, it, it just strikes me because for so many years, liberals were painted as or accused of being snowflakes. There was this term safetyism that John Heider came up with that said, John Heider rather came up with that said, you know, you know, liberals and leftists, they want trigger warnings. They weaponize the idea that they are under physical threat to win arguments and gain power rhetorically. And I do think that, of course, there are legitimate safety concerns that exist with any public figure. But we're starting to see repeatedly, we saw this with Elon Musk and the Elon Jets case, where he censored a number of journalists that were covering the Elon Musk uh, jet, jet account drama, mm -hmm. um, using my safety to my children, et cetera, as an excuse. And it does, it is an interesting turnabout that seems to have happened here, where all the kind of the family is being sure, foregrounded. I, yeah, I, I don't in know what the, the safety way. issue is particularly, but. I understand why he felt under—that uh, th maybe he, he can't—he couldn't speak his mind fully. I mean, he did speak his mind fully about the situation with The Daily Wire, but why mm -hmm. he might felt under threat because of what Candace Owens had said, and, and that's pretty bad. Even though, in the dispute itself, I don't really—I I think The Daily Wire's side has more merit. So yeah, for sure. Maybe, maybe Candace Owens knows more that she's sitting on, which again is, is well, a kind of a cruel thing. Well, that doesn't paint her in a better position. That paints her in a worse position. <laughs> no, there's there's nothing about Candace Owens' behavior here that points her in a good light, except for maybe that that natty blazer she's wearing in that clip. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were complimenting her uh, her sense of fashion. Well, look, it's it's a great set. It's a great jacket. What can I say? <laughs> what can we say? All right, tomorrow on Rising, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene joins us for an exclusive interview. You will not want to miss that. We are so looking forward to it. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. Bye-bye. See you tomorrow.